Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man with a bite that binds and the gift that gives. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the captain. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are still sipping on Old Scout straight bourbon whiskey, slow sipping on Old Scout Straight Bourbon Whiskey, garage grade, five bottle caps out of five. Sound the trumpets, everybody. And let's give some praise and thank you to our good friends for helping us filling up the fridge for this week's show. First up, a big shout to Jenny in Moorhead City, North Carolina. Oh, Jenny from the block. Big shout out to Julia in Gig Harbor, Washington. Next up, we have a cheers to Elise in Manuka, Illinois. A big We Like You Jib to Roseanne in Nashville, North Carolina. Next up, a big shout out to Joy Luang Siaraj in Atwater, Minnesota. And last but certainly not least, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a cheers to Elizabeth in Kihei, Hawaii. Everyone we just mentioned, well, they went to truecrimegarage.com and they clicked on that donate button, which helped us out with this week's beer run. And be patient, people. We're behind on the beer shout out, so we'll get to you. It's or don't be patient, but we will still get to you. <laughs> we will eventually get to you. Ladies, 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 make sure you go to the store page and check out our campfire long sleeve t-shirts. I think you're going to love them. They say be good, be kind, and don't litter. Get those at truecrimegarage.com. Click on the store page. And Colonel, that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. We 
When we left off yesterday, Captain, 11-year-old Jordan Brown was arrested for murder. So what I want to do here at the top of this show is start off with a little more background information on Jordan and his father. We're going to go back to 1997. This is when his mother, Mildred Krause, was pregnant with Jordan. During this time, she filed a protection from abuse order against Jordan's father, Chris Brown. Mildred alleged that, quote, he drinks heavily, he uses drugs, and he has such a temper. When I told him I was going back to Florida, he tore up my brother's room. He also tried running me off of the road when I had the baby with me. He told me if I ever broke up with him, he would kill me, end quote. That is Mildred Krause, Jordan Brown's mother, a protection of abuse from Chris Brown. Now, we have no way of knowing whether any of Mildred's allegations are true, although she and Chris did split up very soon after Jordan's birth. Chris ended up with custody of Jordan, however, and Mildred, she unfortunately became sick with cancer. She says she gave up custody because she couldn't take care of Jordan or give him a stable upbringing. Chris and Jordan were very, very close, and they did everything together. Jordan's uncles describe him as a normal boy who liked video games, dirt bikes, and hunting with his dad. Jordan was on a Mighty Mites football team at school. We aren't privy to his school records because those are sealed. Some people say he was just a normal kid, and others say Jordan was a bit of a bully. After the murders, Kenzie's family started to tell stories about Jordan. Kenzie's brother-in-law, Jason Craner, recounted an episode in which his own child told him months before the murders that he had been playing guns with Jordan. And Jordan actually told my son that he wanted to do that to her, meaning he wanted to shoot Kenzie and her girls. Jordan Brown is 11 years old. Is it possible that he has a little bit of a jealousy because he's so close with his father. And now these new people are coming into his father's life and they're drawing attention away from him. Well, and that's exactly what Kinsey's family says they believe was going on. They said that there was an issue with jealousy. We should point out that's not out of question here. And one could see that that could be the situation. He's 11 years old and very quickly he basically has a whole new family, right? They've only lived in that home for four months before Kinsey was shot and killed. And so in a relatively short period of time, he's now not just living with his father, but he's living with his father, these two young girls, a new mom, air quotes, and a baby on the way and a new house. So his little young life has changed dramatically in a very short period of time. Well, and once Kinsey's family brings up these ideas of jealousy, law enforcement's going to adopt this theory. That seems right here, Captain. The prosecutor started putting together a theory that Jordan wanted to get rid of Kinsey and that he was likely jealous of the new baby, wanting his father and his you know life all to himself. Whatever happened with this situation where one of the kids tells a, an adult that Jordan wanted to do that to Kenzie and the girls, well, this seems to have been lost on Chris and Kenzie, right? They, if, if they were relayed this information, they must have just denied it or dismissed it. And then we have the situation that Jordan's attorneys 
they point out that, look, Chris Brown had no idea that his son had a problem with Kinsey. And that's because they say he didn't have a problem with Kinsey. Police also interviewed Chris Brown's girlfriend of seven years. This is important here because we are, we're talking about an 11-year-old. He lived uh, with this woman for seven years, Laura Miller. Remember, Chris Brown dated her from 2000 to 2007. Laura knew Jordan very well and told police that her son Frank and Jordan called each other brothers. Here are some excerpts from her recorded interview. Question, did Jordan ever act out violently? Answer, Mostly, he just cried. Question, how did Jordan get along with other kids? The answer was, he was shy. If he was by himself, he was shy. When Jordan and Frank were together, they were never afraid to meet other kids. How did you get along with Jordan? This is really interesting to me because this is another woman that he lived with for a much longer period of time. How did you get along with Jordan? Were you afraid of him? The answer is Jordan called me mommy for more than six years. We loved each other. No, I was not ever afraid of him. And not to interrupt you, but we have to remember that Jordan was calling Kinsey mom. Next question. Was Frank afraid of Jordan? No, Frank loved him like a brother and he still does. But Laura also told police of one fight between Jordan and Frank when Jordan was five years old. And she says, I remember on one occasion in 2002, my son Frank was playing with his toy xylophone and Jordan told him to quit. I told Jordan that he was just playing and that he could continue playing. Jordan was sitting on his dad's lap, punching his fist into his open hand. Sometime later, Jordan got up and ran back into the bedroom and punched Frank in the face. Jordan then bit his own arm and said that Frank had bit him. Jordan needed to learn how to deal with his emotions, is what she said. Jordan cried a lot when he was very young. She said he was shy, withdrawn, and jealous over his dad. During the time I knew him, he lied a lot. Even when caught, he would continue to lie. This next story is particularly horrible, so brace yourselves. Get ready. Put them earballs in a seatbelt because mm -hmm. it's a bumpy ride. I wish I didn't have to say this, but quote, I remember one time when Chris had found some mice in the trailer. He put the mice in a bucket and went outside the trailer. When I saw them, Chris was throwing firecrackers in the bucket and both he and Jordan were laughing. My son Frank was also with them, but he was crying, end quote. Yeah, that's what you want to do. Torture animals with your kid. Okay, so the police have their man or their boy, but now we need to flesh out a case against him that will stand up in court. So police interviewed everyone they could think of. One person of importance here, Captain, would be the school bus driver who first saw Jordan and Janessa when they were about a third of the way down the driveway walking toward the road. Right. He said that he observed them coming down the driveway until they got onto the bus. He said when they saw the bus waiting for them, they both began to run toward the bus with Jordan leading Janessa by about 10 yards. They did not act in any way unusual, nor did he observe either of them leave the driveway or throw anything. Right, because the, Janessa claims that she saw Jordan throw something when they got towards the edge of the driveway. The children got onto the bus, took their respective seats, and behaved in a completely ordinary fashion for the duration of 
the ride. Now, the only reason why I'm not going to fully believe the bus driver, again, not saying that they're a liar, <laughs> but the but the problem is, and, and you know this, you rode the bus for many of years as a student. Mm-hmm. When the bus comes and the little stop sign goes out and they're, they're watching the kids, they're also watching the traffic bef- behind them and in front of them. So is it possible at some point this bus driver took their eyes off the kid and and Jordan threw something when, when the bus driver wasn't looking? Not to mention all the other kids on the bus. Yes. This is a very distracting job, um, a job that I am happy that I don't do. Uh, so I applaud those that do that job. I don't know that I would have any hair left if I had that job. <laughs> But um, yes, so I can understand that uh, it would be difficult for this bus driver to give a full account, but the account that he gave, there you have it. He saw them for the entire time. They didn't behave in any way that he thought was abnormal. He didn't see either child throw anything or discard anything at any point. That's why I kind of circle back to the whole thing of I want these interviews recorded because we have these statements by Trooper Wilson who says, Well, in the second interview, Jordan hesitated, and he's changing his answers. What I really would like to know is, by that point in the second interview, he's been made aware that his stepmother or soon-to-be stepmother has been killed, has been murdered. If he is innocent, that means that during the course of the first interview, he's unaware of any of that very important information. Now, if he's guilty... He is aware of why the officer is interviewing him without being told that he's being interviewed because his soon-to-be stepmother has been murdered. Right. I want that to be a recorded interview because I want to know, did this kid seem nervous? Like, beyond the point of, oh, you're just being asked random questions, ordinary questions from a police officer, I would think that an 11-year-old boy that knew that information going into the first interview would have visible signs of being nervous a hundred percent agree i think if those interviews are recorded then we have demeanor yes and i think that's really important and what we have here captain is we have the troopers going out of their way to explain his behavior and to detail his behavior during the course of the second interview but we don't have the same for the first interview where he could have just been a normal little 11-year-old boy that doesn't know something horrible has happened to his family. This is going to lead us to the preliminary hearing, which is really kind of a mini-trial here. This will be held on March 24th to determine if there was probable cause to bind Jordan over for trial. The district attorney said of the evidence against Jordan, I have a shotgun blast to the back of the head that's consistent with a 20-gauge shotgun shell. I have a 20-gauge youth model in his room, which smells like it's recently fired. He's got gun residue on him. I think at this point, that's more than enough. He went on describing the killing as premeditated and cold-blooded. He said Jordan shot Kenzie, put the shotgun back in his bedroom, threw or hid the spent shell casing in the snow, and then rode the bus to Mohawk Elementary School with Janessa as if nothing had happened. Seems like it'd be hard to act normal if you murdered your stepmom or if you even accidentally killed her. Yeah, and again, though, I think what we're pointing out, though, here, Captain, I get what you're saying. Could this have been an accident? 
that's certainly in the realm of possibility. The problem is when you start covering up your accident, it's right. now murder. And if he, or if he planned to poke around down there with a gun, it's, he's still responsible for her death at the end of the day. Yes. But his actions of covering up to me would lean more towards he's 11 years old and not 25, 30 year old kid trying to cover up murder. Okay. But that's not the picture that they're going to paint for us at his trial. So at this trial, the prosecution will call 10 witnesses. We have a trooper that testified that test showed that Jordan's clothing taken from his person on the evening of February 20th. These are the same items that he wore to school that day had gunshot residue on them. He acknowledged on cross that the analyst report also stated that the residue, this is important because you hear gunshot residue on this kid and you go, all right, he did it. Let's lock him up and throw away the key. Right. But on cross, it's pointed out that the gunshot residue could have resulted from any of the following three things, discharging a firearm, standing near someone who discharged a firearm or coming in contact with a surface that had gunshot residue on it. Another trooper testified that he found a 20 gauge shotgun in Jordan's upstairs bedroom and it smelled as though it had recently been fired. Another trooper said that there was no evidence of a break in at all at the home. In fact, a wad of cash was visible on a table in the bedroom. And just to play devil's advocate, yes, no signs of break-in because all the doors were unlocked. And if your purpose there was to murder somebody, then mm -hmm. who cares about the money that's on the table? Exactly. You're exactly right. You don't have to break in. Just walk right in. Right. Another trooper testified that when she first talked to Jordan at school, he said he saw a black truck near the farmhouse that morning, but thought it was for a man who came to feed livestock. The trooper went on to say that in the second interview, about 10 hours later, Jordan's story changed. It was now a truck and there was a person in a white hat inside who ducked down out of sight. Again, I think we both agree that it it's adding details to a story. I don't know how much it's the story changing. Correct. I, I can lean toward that that argument. The testimony of Trooper Martin from a previous proceeding was also considered by the court. And I think that this, I don't have the exact statements that they took from Trooper Martin's statement, but I think that this might have been about the footprints in the snow, that the kids' prints, the two children's footprints coming down the driveway were the only ones around the house. Yeah. And this is not a John Benet Ramsey situation where they're saying hey there's no footprints because there was no snow there was a there was a lot of snow so there should have been some kind of other footprints yeah there what i mean there wasn't a ton of snow i guess but the thing here that i have a hard time wrapping my head around here captain is it continued to snow right so i mean i guess yes if you could see the children's and we're assuming it sounds like we're assuming we we can't say for certain, right, that those are the footprints of the children, but there are two footprints, sets of footprints on the driveway. Could somebody have entered the home and the footprints gone undetected? That's the trouble, troubling thing, right? A killer doesn't ne necessarily have to walk up the driveway and go in the, through the front door. There's right. four entrances to the home. This is a rural property. Someone could have entered the home from any direction on foot. The court ruled on March 29th, 2009, 
that there was, in fact, enough evidence to try Jordan for the murders. Yeah, Jordan Brown, 11 years old. Well, as we said, Captain, we have Jordan Brown who's going to stay in that juvenile facility for several years. We have the court records and all the motions and trials that took place. If we go through all of them here, well, that will take about as long as Jordan sat in that juvenile facility. So we're going to kind of skim through this and give you the important details. Now, in this regard, there was a determination that there was, in fact, enough evidence to try Jordan for these murders. They're basically saying that we've established enough evidence that the defendant was the killer, that he acted alone. The evidence indicates that on the morning of the shooting, the father left for work, leaving the defendant, the victim, Kinsey Houck, and her children, Janessa and Adeline, in the residence. Of the three children... Only the defendant was experienced in firing a shotgun and removing an expended shell. There were no signs of forced entry into the residence, nor any signs of a struggle, robbery, or theft. As a result of the light covering of snow, it was observable that the only footprints were those of the defendant and Janessa when they left for school at approximately 8.14 a.m. There were no other footprints or tire tracks of any person or vehicle that would have approached the residence during the time in which the killing could have occurred. They go on to say that the defendant owned a 20-gauge shotgun, which was found in his bedroom, along with other guns. Of the six guns found in the bedroom, the defendant's 20-gauge shotgun had the strong odor of gunpowder residue, indicating that it had been recently fired. Well, back to that black truck, if... There was a black truck there, whether it's the man coming to feed the animals or if it's just a similar black truck, where are the tire prints? Well, and that's that's easily something that you can detect and get to the bottom of. You go and interview the person that feeds the cattle. Right. If he says he was there, then you go, all right, well, that explains away the black truck. If he says he wasn't there, well, then we have a, no, a whole nother set of issues if, in fact, the truck was there. And as you pointed out, where are the tire tracks for that truck? I don't not going to sit here and pretend that I have a great understanding of the layout of this property. Is it possible that there was a black truck there? And for whatever reason, later tracks are not detected. I think it could be, but again, not having a good understanding of this property really limits my ability to have an opinion on that. Now here's where I get a little upset. Yes. So they go on to cite, they're citing the evidence as to why we need to try this kid for the murders. And one of the pieces of evidence that they cite here in the court record, I'll read from the court record here because words are important. Just not grammar. It says along the path of the footprints of the defendant from the residence to the roadway was located a shotgun shell in pristine condition, indicating it had been recently placed in that location. A ballistics report showed that the shell was fired from the defendant's shotgun. Let me repeat that. A ballistics report showed that the shell was fired from the defendant's shotgun. That is not true. That is a false statement. This is in the court record, and it really pisses me off because the reality of it and the science of it is this statement is very incorrect. Tell them about it. What the ballistics showed is that it could have been fired from that gun. So to change the wording of that to say that it was fired from the gun is incredibly misleading. Right. 
They go on to cite more evidence. Gunpowder residue was found on the clothing taken from the defendant at the time of his arrest. This was clothes that he would have been wearing during the time frame of the murder. They go on to cite, too, that the defendant was familiar with the use of a shotgun, having been observed to have loaded and unloaded a gun, removed spent shells, and to have been successful in a turkey shoot just several days before the killing. I was a champion at shooting turkey back in my day. And there's one part here, too, that upsets me as well, where they're saying that of the three people that would have been in the home, the three survivors, Jordan, Janessa, and Adeline, that he is the only one. Yes, we know that he operated a gun and he was familiar with with doing that, but they say he was the only one that could do that, which is, again, an incorrect statement. Right. It's not true. I think anybody with fingers and, and arms could operate a gun. Yeah, or people with long toes. Let me get this correct. He was told to move his guns that day? We don't know that. According to Janessa's story, when she sees him carrying guns down the stairs, she asks him why he's doing that, to which he replies, my father told me to move them. Let's just say that part of the story is true. He could have moved those guns. That would be the reason he would have maybe this gun residue, this gunpowder residue on his person. That doesn't mean he fired the gun. That is a possibility. However, Jordan's statements do not back up that statement of Janessa. He doesn't say at any time that he handled a gun that morning. In fact, he denies it. That's a big problem. I think in cases where you're interviewing children is you don't necessarily think that they're lying to cover something up, but they just might not be telling you the truth. Well, Jordan would sit there almost, I don't want to say wasting away, but he's sitting there in a juvenile detention facility before a bench trial could take place, which took place in 2012. The murder occurred in 2009. Jordan consistently and continually denied having anything to do with Kinsey's murder, and his family, you know, the Brown side of the family anyway, backed him up on this. Now, there are many reasons why it took so long, but one really strange legal aspect to this case that's important to the story is as follows. In October of 2009, Jordan's attorneys motioned that his case should be moved to the juvenile court. In March of 2010, which is over a year after the murders, the transfer to juvenile court was denied because according to Judge Motto, one, no evidence connected anyone else to the murders, and two, the judge agreed with the prosecution that since Jordan would not admit any guilt, his lack of contrition meant that he would not be amendable to rehabilitation in the juvenile system. Per the law in Pennsylvania, one test of whether a criminal proceeding should be remanded to juvenile court is whether the child has accepted responsibility for the underlining offense. As a result of Jordan Brown's lack of acceptance of responsibility, he continued to insist he did not do it, the judge concluded that the defense had not established that Jordan was amendable to treatment and therefore was not appropriate for the juvenile system. So what does all that mumbo jumbo mean? Per a law review article that we read about the law applied by Judge Motto, quote, Pennsylvania's juvenile transfer statute puts the child in a type of catch-22. 
admit to the crime and be tried as a juvenile or maintain your innocence and be tried in the adult criminal justice system. Which is complete bullshit. Yes. And it's the same thing they do with like parole hearings. Oh, well, if, if I'm telling you that I didn't kill this person, but you want me to accept responsibility or you won't parole me. Right. You're in a no-win situation. Now, it would take until March of 2011, so now we are over two years past the murders, that this ruling got overruled. Basically, they're saying this is a violation of Jordan's Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Right? Admit to it and get tried as a juvenile or maintain your innocence and go fight it out in adult criminal justice court giant pile of horse. So the reason that all of this is so important is because under Pennsylvania law, if Jordan were remanded to the juvenile system, instead of the adult system, he would remain in the juvenile system only until his 21st birthday. That's if he's found guilty, the juvenile court only has jurisdiction until 21. At that point, He's eligible for release. If he's tried and convicted as an adult, he could spend the rest of his life in prison. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 
5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Y'all gonna make me lose my mind up in here, up in here. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. And a quick reminder, if you're not following us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you want to do so. You can find us on any of those platforms at True Crime Garage. I will be sharing photos, not only of the people of the case, but also a few of the pictures of the property so you can get a sense of what we're talking about. The attorney general or the AG's office would be in charge of prosecuting the case, the case against Jordan Brown. They started off the trial. We would end up having about three days of testimony during this trial, but they started off the trial by reminding the court of all the evidence that had been relied on in the previous hearings. And 
reminding them that we, the state, established that a juvenile's gun was used to kill the victim. Gunshot residue was on Jordan's shirt and pants. The police focused on him because he was the most likely perpetrator. All other possibilities were eliminated. Okay, I'm going to stay on this, and I'm sorry if I upset anyone, but I'm going to stay on it because it really upsets me. You get him, goat boy. Again, here's the line. We established that a juvenile's gun was used to kill the victim. No, you established that a gun was used to kill the victim, not a gun that was specifically mm-hmm. built for a juvenile to use. Again, you can control thought by manipulating language. If you can control language, you essentially can control thought. And by choosing to use these words and putting out incorrect statements and sentences at the trial, you are painting a much different picture. It was established that a shotgun was used to kill the victim, not that a juvenile's gun was used to kill the victim. Then the prosecution explains why other possibilities were eliminated. Yeah, they say for someone else to be the killer other than Jordan Brown, the AG's office said they would have had to know where the family lived, which was a remote location that they had not lived in very long. They had to know that the gun was kept in Jordan's upstairs room, know that the ammunition for that gun was kept in Kinsey's room, successfully go into her room without waking her, get the ammunition, kill her, and return the gun to Jordan's bedroom. The person would have had to have left without leaving footprints or tire tracks, all of this within a half an hour. Okay, so let's clear some of that up. Actually, it was an hour. It wasn't a half an hour. Right. Uh, let's get our words right here. We're talking about sentencing somebody to prison for the rest of their life. 11-year-old. Yeah. And th- again, the wording on this, they would have had to have known where the family lived. Okay, I get that. They would have had to have known that the gun was kept in Jordan's upstairs room. Again, you've not established that that gun is the actual murder weapon. Right. Know that the ammunition for the gun was kept in Kinsey's room. Again, you've not established that the ammunition that came from that armoire actually is the ammunition that killed for killed her. What we do know scientifically, Captain, is that gun could have been used to kill her. The ammunition could have been used to kill her. Right, and that we know that that firearm was fired recently. They're presenting all of this as fact. When in all actuality, it's just possibilities. Well, hold on a second. One of the things that I think like the defense is, maybe maybe they didn't miss this, but didn't he fire and kill some turkey recently? Yeah, he was uh, successful at that turkey shoot that was six days before the murder. If I'm the defense, that's what I'm arguing. That's when the firearm was fired. So basically the AG's office is saying that someone inside the house is responsible and there's no other reasonable suspect. And he is the only reasonable suspect. I'll try to bring this up for the last time of this case. I agree with you so much on the interviews being actually taped to know what his demeanor was. That first interview would have been crucial. They also pointed out that premeditation existed in this murder because once Janessa saw Jordan with the gun, he went back upstairs and covered it up with a blanket before coming back down. He also took a shell from the box downstairs. This required deliberately loading the gun to shoot Kinsey. So basically, if you have 
any length of time you're doing all these actions to shoot her, this proves that it's premeditated. Whoever used the gun to kill Kinsey then put the gun back upstairs. Again, we've not 100% satisfied me or anybody that that was absolutely the gun that was used. Basically, what they're trying to tell us here, Captain, is this. Is that that morning, for whatever reason, it could have been the jealousy, a whole lot of other reasons, we don't know. But this 11-year-old decided he was going to go downstairs with his gun that he recently got as a Christmas gift and shoot his soon-to-be stepmother. Person that he calls mom. They're saying that he put a blanket, the, the blanket that was later found with the hole in it, over the gun so that he could conceal the shotgun either from his, from the girls living in the house or from Kinsey herself. Right. He has to go into her bedroom where she's lying on the bed asleep, open up the armoire, take out a shotgun shell, load the gun, put it to the back of her head, pull the trigger, then go back upstairs, wipe the gun down, unload the shell. Do the hokey pokey. Put the shotgun back in its place, cover it up with the orange blanket along with the other five guns. And then as he's leaving to go catch the school bus with Janessa, he then throws down the the shell. Some of the evidence at the house being the blanket with the hole in it and the blood that is on the frame, the door frame, which is the front entrance to the home to which Chris Brown has already told investigators nobody in the house ever used the front door. And according to Janessa and Jordan Brown, they went out the side door that morning. So yes, maybe he could have touched the door frame prior to leaving the house that day. But according to their statements, they went out the side door. Right. And that's both of their statements. Is there a touch DNA evidence on the, on the blanket? Do we know that that hole is from a gunshot? Well, that's where we get to Jordan's defense. So his defense team is going to do their best to contradict the quote unquote evidence presented by the prosecution. They acknowledge that the shell found was consistent with Jordan's gun, but there was no evidence that it was actually fired by that gun. The gun smelling like gunpowder could be residual from the turkey shoot. The blanket was subsequently subjected to microscopic examination and chemical testing and no gunshot residue or blood was found on it. This is important because according to their theory, the hole in the blanket is because he left the the blanket concealing the shotgun as he shot her. That's the only reasonable explanation for this hole in the blanket. Why would there not be blowback, spatter, or gunshot residue? Because their theory's wrong. On this gun, or, or on the blanket, more importantly. Right. They go on to say that no fingerprints or DNA linked Jordan to anything. This, this is one that, that's tricky for me. It sounds good for the defense. Look, no DNA, no fingerprints link him to anything. So, meaning none of his prints or DNA was found on the gun. I actually have a big problem with that and a big problem with it for the defense. If this was his gun and he had used it recently, I would expect to to find fingerprints, his fingerprints on the gun. But you did not. That actually, to me suggests that possibly this gun was used for the murder 
and maybe somebody wiped this gun down before returning it to its rightful place. Yeah, a wiper. The GSR found on Jordan was microscopic amount. Uh, There was one particle on each of his shirt and pants. And of course, we've already been told that it's possible that that could have been transferred from uh, another item or another surface. And they point out specifically his winter coat because we know that he wore that same winter coat at the turkey shoot just six days before. They also pointed out that the family routinely used the property for target practice, so spent shells were all over the place, and police found a couple of them on the property. Jordan had no prior juvenile record or history of violence. He was close with his father and had no mental issues or diagnosis, and it's not realistic to think that an 11-year-old is sophisticated enough to carry out this crime while leaving so little evidence behind. That is the defense's argument. There's so many moving pieces and parts to this case. It's almost like law enforcement dismissed any idea of an intruder theory to begin with. I'd like to know more about the people that were in Kinsey's life. Well, that's a good segue here, Captain, because I have another suspect for you. We say that they exhausted all other possibilities. Well, one thing that was not clear was how much possible emphasis Jordan's defense team placed on other possible suspects at this trial. And there was probably a good suspect here. There's one that at least raised some eyebrows. I know that. And the day of the murder, February 20th, 2009, the state police put out an APB for an Adam Harvey. Harvey was Kenzie's ex of six years. And police were well aware that the two of them had a fraught history. At the time of the murder, Kenzie, her parents, her sister, and her brother-in-law all had a three-year protection from abuse order against Adam Harvey. This was issued after an incident in February of 2008. This is a year before the murder when Harvey, who was living in North Carolina, called Kenzie's mother and threatened to take her whole family out. This was the second protection order issued. The first was issued in May of 2006 after Kinsey reported that Harvey abused her and said things that involved threatening to kill her or have her killed by his friends. He also physically attacked Kinsey and he and his brother threatened to kill her. After this, Kinsey and Harvey reconciled and then moved to North Carolina. But soon he resumed his abusive ways and began accumulating guns. Kenzie left him and took Janessa and Adeline, who was born while Kenzie was in the relationship with Harvey, and moved back to Wampum, New Galilee, to be with her family. Harvey moved back to that area in October of 2008. So this is just months before someone killed Kenzie. Harvey lived within 10 miles of Kenzie. Chris Brown testified that he and Kenzie deliberately chose to have an unlisted phone number at the house they rented to make sure that Harvey could not contact them. Chris once listened to 12 voicemails Adam Harvey left for Kenzie in which he repeatedly threatened her and her family. Well, that's 12 voicemails too many. He also left numerous voicemails for her mom and Debbie threatening Kenzie and everyone else. So very clearly Kenzie was afraid of her ex Adam Harvey. This little piece of evidence or a nugget of information I think is really important that two weeks before 
the murder, Harvey received a paternity test stating that his, the, the four-year-old daughter that he thought was his was not his. Exactly. And the other thing we should note here as well is that Adam Harvey drove a black pickup truck. Oh, shit bag. They did track him down. Now, mind you, this is interesting. On the same day that she's murdered, they put out an APB for this man. They're looking for him. That's where their minds go to immediately after finding her killed, regardless of what they're seeing at the scene. All these things that they say later pointed to an inside job. Now, they tracked him down and voluntarily he spoke to the police, or that's the statement that we have, is that he voluntarily came to talk to the police. This was after the police confronted him at an intersection. They noted that his black truck had a light coating of snow on it, and the snow was dirty. Harvey was taken to the state police barracks and interviewed at 12, I'm sorry, and interviewed around 2.20 p.m. on the day of the murders. He admitted that he was surprised by the paternity test results and that he and Kinsey argued over child support payments. But he told police that he didn't know where Kinsey lived. And besides, he said he had an alibi for the morning of the shooting. He had been at home in the basement of his parents' house where he lived since 10 p.m., he says, the previous evening. And that the only way out of the house was through the upstairs, through an upstairs door where his dad was. His dad would have seen him leave. And his father says that he never saw Harvey leave between 10 p.m. the night before and the time in question. I don't like these alibis. I spousal alibis or family alibis. Uh, nope. I don't, I don't buy them. It's not an alibi to me. Per the court record, Harvey's hands were tested at the time by investigators for presence of gunshot residue, but none was detected based on his proffered alibi and the presence of snow on the truck, which the investigators opinion suggested that he could not have driven to Wampum a a distance of, about eight to 10 miles away and then back without all the snow coming off. So they say that the snow evidence on his truck, no gunshot residue on his person and the alibi uh, being at his parents' home seems to be enough for them to have moved on from, from Harvey. Well, he could have used the blanket himself and then therefore there'd be no gun residue on his person. Yeah, possibly. I'm just a little confused why there's no scientific evidence on the blanket itself. It it makes Right. You can't I don't think you can have it both ways. Right? You cannot say that he used it to conceal the shotgun and I'm assuming their statement is that he continued to cover the shotgun when he fired it. And that's how the blanket got the hole in it. But the problem with that is why is there no gun evidence or blood evidence on that blanket? When you're telling me the pathologist is saying that the gun was two inches or less from the victim when it was fired. It just, it doesn't ring true and you can't have it both ways. So either that blanket has nothing to do with the murder at all. I mean, that's what the, the, the scientific evidence would suggest. Right. Or it was not used in the manner that they are implying that it was used. Well, I see our blog posts blowing up this week. Again, that's at truecrimegarage.com. I can't get over the fact that this guy, one ex-boyfriend, he's abusive. But I can't get over the black truck. 
Jordan is saying, I saw this black truck. It's not the guy that I normally see in a black truck that's similar to this. And the fact that Jordan told people about this black truck before he was even interviewed by law enforcement. Yeah, it's difficult. And this whole case to me is difficult because of the evidence or the lack thereof. And again, it goes back to, well, how do you paint the picture? And the way that they paint the picture is as such that it was that gun in his room that was used. It was the ammunition that was in Kenzie's room that was used to kill her. And because of those factors, those key factors, and then Janessa saying, I saw him with the gun and I saw him chuck something into the yard when we ran to the bus. Well, then that makes him your prime suspect. However, in reality is it's never proven that that was the gun that was used. It was never proven that that shell casing was the ammunition that was used to kill Kenzie. You have Janessa's changing stories. She's seven years old. Is it possible that somebody entered the home through an unlocked door, shot and killed this woman, and then turned around and walked out? And for whatever reason... Nobody detected tire tracks or footprints. The bullet casing that they found in the yard that Jordan Brown chucked, according to Janessa, as they ran out to the school bus, was found underneath snow. So it's also not crazy to think that there's potential other evidence that was then covered by snow after the murders. In my opinion, because the prosecution controlled the language controlled the narrative. That's how they got the guilty verdict that they got against Jordan Brown. Yes, he's found to be guilty. And after the trial, we have Jack Houck, who is Kenzie's father, who called Jordan evil. He stated, quote, I hope he gets the help he needs. The kids got a problem. And we have her mother, Debbie, who told the media he's guilty. And my only reaction is, yes, he should have been found guilty, but it ain't bringing back Kenzie and the baby. So Jordan is remanded to the custody of the juvenile facility until the age of 21. Now, under state law during his juvenile treatment, Jordan would receive counseling and would also be evaluated every six months for possible release per the Juvenile Act. Every six months, the judge gets, in effect, a progress report on the child, to determine if Jordan is fully rehabilitated and releasable. But at the latest, he would get out in August of 2018 when he would be turning 21 years of age. This is one of the things that makes the case so difficult because if you believe that Jordan Brown is responsible for the murder of his stepmom and his half-sibling, that him getting out of prison when he's 21 is not justice and that Jordan Brown got away with murder. On the other hand, if you don't think Jordan Brown is responsible for the murders and you believe suspects like Adam Harvey should have been looked into more, then you could view that situation as Adam Harvey getting away with murder. Well, and after the conviction, we're going to take Jordan's case all the way, you know, up the courts, as they say, and we're going to appeal this and we're going to appeal that and we're going to challenge the ruling. We're going to challenge the verdict and continue to plea our case that Jordan is innocent and did not commit this murder. Now, 
Jordan's arguments to the Supreme Court are as follows. That the gun in the shell, in regard to the gun in the shell, the Supreme Court agreed with Jordan that the evidence of the record did not support the juvenile court's conclusion that the 20-gauge shotgun recovered from the upstairs bedroom was the murder weapon. The Supreme Court agreed that the 20-gauge shotgun shell, which was recovered from an area in which Jordan and his father had routinely shot such weapons on previous occasions, was found buried under snow, covered ice and leaves, raised a doubt as to whether it had been fired from the shotgun on the day of the murder. Also, the school bus driver did not see him throw anything. Further, Jordan, in his arguments to the Supreme Court, points out that the firearms expert could not directly link the pellets recovered from the victim's body to the shotgun taken from Jordan's room. The test he ran showed only that the pellets recovered from the victim's skull were, quote, consistent, end quote, in their size, shape, weight, and material with the pellets in the unfired shotgun shell located inside the armoire. The firearms expert testified that smooth bore shotguns, unlike rifles or pistols, have no unique grooves in their barrels, and hence they do not produce any identifying marks on shotgun shell pellets discharged from a particular shotgun. As a result, he could not perform an individualized comparison analysis of the pellets which were recovered from the victim's body with the pellets in the box of shells located in the armoire. That's a really long way of saying they were not able to determine if that ammunition was used to kill her, right? which they said in their theory that they presented at court that that ammunition did kill her. They're also not able to prove that the gun was fired on that day, that the gun was used to commit that murder. They presented it as it was. And so basically what we're going to end up having here, Captain, because I could go through about seven or eight more pages of this stuff. In the end, what they are going to determine is that these items, they don't necessarily weigh stronger one way or another, do they? They don't necessarily suggest guilt or innocence. They're all kind of just 50-50. These are the facts of the case. Yes, there were guns in the house. A similar type gun was used to kill the victim. Yes, there was ammunition in the house. A similar type ammunition was used to kill the victim. But you can't put all these things together and string them along and say that, yes, this happened, this was used, and this was used by this person to kill this person. You can't weigh one way or the other in an opinion or a determination of the facts. Hold on to your seat for one of the most frustrating endings of a case. So like we said, he was charged. He gets out of prison. Charged, tried, and convicted. Yes. But, But because of these appeals here, Captain... What we end up with is the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, the Western District, would ultimately hand down a verdict in 2018. This is after nine and a half years of legal back and forth and three appeals. The court unanimously threw out Jordan's conviction. It overturned the original guilty verdict. The Supreme Court ruled that the Commonwealth's evidence was insufficient as a matter of law to overcome Jordan's presumption of innocence. 
In fact, the court concluded the forensic evidence and witness testimony could go either way, being that they were consistent with two possibilities, his guilt and his innocence. But by them throwing out his conviction, you would think that the state then wants to go after a different suspect, but it doesn't seem like the state's doing much to solve this this case. Well, th- it's really uncommon for this to even go down the way that it did to begin with. And although the court did not go so far, even though they threw out his conviction, they didn't go so far as to declare that Jordan was innocent. It did reverse the juvenile court's adjudication of his delinquency because there was not enough evidence to convict him. Again, a rare occurrence. But because he had already been tried for the murders, now double jeopardy is attached and Jordan cannot be tried again. So he's free, as you said, uh, but he was actually already released before they overturned his conviction. As it turned out, pursuant to one of the every six months reviews that were called for by law when Jordan was found guilty, he had already been released when this ruling came down. He was released in June of 2016 at the age of 18. He was released from juvenile custody custody and placed on probation in the custody of an uncle who lived in Ohio. When he turned 21, he would be released from the probation. So he got out of he got out of prison, was on this probation and would have been off of the probation when he turned 21, but before that the Supreme Court ruling changed everything. And again, it overturned his conviction and he would no longer have the guilty verdict hanging over his head or on his record. But it's unsatisfying, isn't it, Captain? That's what she said. This whole case, this whole story, all of the trials, all of the legal stuff, the shifting, it's all very unsatisfying because at the end of the day, we don't know who is responsible for these murders. The state spent so much time telling us that Jordan Brown was the one responsible for these murders. And then the defense in the appeals process later tells us, well, we can't really determine who in fact was responsible. Well, basically telling us that Jordan, we can't determine if he is actually responsible, just that there's not enough evidence to convict him. So now you have, if you were to present this story, this real life true crime story to a room of 100 people, you're going to have 50 of them that say he's guilty as hell and he got off easy. And you're going to have the other 50 people that are probably going to say they didn't find the right guy. They didn't get the right guy. And the real killer is still out there. But after presenting all the evidence, is there something that sticks out to you that maybe sways you one way or another? There are severe concerns I have about some of the statements and possible evidence in this case. First off, I don't like the contradicting stories of Jordan and the bus driver In Jordan's story. Janessa is ahead of him when he sees this truck that's parked by the garage. When the officer asked him, did you tell Janessa about the truck? He says, I attempted to, but I don't think she heard me because she was too far ahead of me by this point. The bus driver says that when he sees the kids running down the driveway to get to the bus, that Jordan 
was in front of Janessa by about 10 yards, according to the bus driver. In Janessa's story, she says that she saw Jordan chuck the shotgun shell or chuck something down toward the ground while they were running on the driveway. Well, if Jordan is behind her, she can't see him chuck anything. So when we have three people telling us a story here, factual, if we are to believe that only one of them would be lying or believe that there's inconsistencies in their story, well, two of their stories are matching up. And that's not Jordan's version of those stories. What's matching up is Janessa's version along with the bus driver's version of that story. So that doesn't look real good for Jordan, in my opinion. I have some very strong questions about that part of this story. I also have major concerns that I've already voiced time and time again about this blanket that was found. We're told by the state that it was a big part of the case and a big part of the murders, yet there's no scientific evidence to suggest that it had anything to do with the murders at all. So that's a real kind of convoluted part of this story. The other thing that I want to point out, too, that we pointed out in episode one that that we talked about briefly, but we didn't go into detail of. We have the story of Adeline that, that changes throughout the years. When she originally spoke with police on the day of the murder. Now, mind you, she's four years old. All right. So we need to take this with a grain of salt. But when she spoke with the officers on the day of the murders, she said that she was up for a while. She watched TV. She ate some food in the kitchen. And then it was when she heard her mother's phone ring that she went into Kenzie's room to find her dead. When she tells the story to 2020 years later, she says that she wakes up to a loud boom, which would be possibly a shotgun blast. I don't know. I can't make heads or tails of which one is, is correct. It, it doesn't, did she hear a shotgun blast, wake up and then eat some food, watch TV for a little bit, and then does not go into the room until the phone rings. That's a possibility, but the story's changing and in the, the problem of having little kids basically filling out the blanks for you has really left me kind of confused in this story as to what I think possibly happened. The black truck, because Jordan could have easily said, yeah, the black truck, there's a guy that comes and feeds the animals. That's who I saw. He didn't say that. He, he went a step further and said, it looks like the same truck, but it wasn't that guy. And the fact that you have a protection order against an abusive asshole already threatened to kill her and her family multiple times, that would lead me away from Jordan being guilty. But I don't think this case is that clear cut, and I think you could study this one for a very long time and flip-flop on on whether you thought he was innocent or guilty I don't think it's that clear cut in this case. It's not. It it definitely is not. And it's one that I've struggled with for the past week. I will leave everybody with this. You know, one of this is a crucial element in the case, I believe. And as we pointed out in episode one, 
the time frame, the timeline is very crucial to this case and every minute counts. And we have the story, and this comes from Jordan, when he's first asked by the officers from Trooper Wilson's report, quote, when asked what time it was, Jordan Brown stated that they usually leave the house at 8.12, but since his mom was telling them they needed to go or they were going to be late, he stated that it was probably 8.13 or 8.14. Everyone's statements are that the bus came to pick them up at 8.12 to 8.15 every morning. One thing that I think is very interesting, and I wonder why it is missing from the trial was that Janessa was never asked to testify about her statements about that morning. And we do know that those statements seem to have changed or morphed through the course of multiple interviews. She's not asked to testify what she witnessed that morning. And I think that that is key here because If you really believed her, if you were the state and you really believed everything that she told you, which was one of the things that led to the arrest of Jordan Brown, well, wouldn't you use that in your arsenal against this guy to convict him? The obvious answer is yes, but they did not. Why? Does she at any point, did she at any point back up Jordan's statement of, well, I heard Kenzie yell. I heard my mother yell that we were going to be late, that we need to go outside or we're going to be late or we're going to miss the bus. If she were to back up Jordan Brown's statement, then that would have gave him approximately two to three minutes to go upstairs, retrieve the gun, cover it with the blanket, go downstairs, find the ammunition, load it, point it to the back of her head, pull the trigger and Janessa does not hear the shotgun go off, and then he goes back upstairs, unloads the gun, wipes it down, puts it away, and then runs out the front door and chucks the shell casing as he's running to the bus, gets on the bus, and then behaves like nothing happened at all. It seems very, very doubtful to me that that could have went down in a matter of two to three minutes. Whatever side of the fence you're on, whether you think he's guilty or innocent, somebody got away with murder. This case leaves a lot of questions. We want to hear your thoughts and opinions. Go to truecrimegarage.com. And leave those on the blog. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading this week for the beautiful listeners? This week we are recommending The Spy and the Traitor, the greatest espionage story of the Cold War by Ben McIntyre. You're going to love this book. I am about halfway through this one here, Captain, and excited to recommend it to everyone out there. So check out The Spy and the Traitor, the greatest espionage story of the Cold War by Ben McIntyre. You can find that great title and many more recommendations on our recommended page at truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, you beautiful people, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.